Welcome to the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. This is a show about pushing through obstacles and hard times in order to live a happy and fulfilled life. I'm your host, Ted Fayton, and it's a pleasure to have you joining us. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's grow. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. So glad to have you here today. I'm here with my executive producer, Andre Suttles, in the building. What's going on, everybody? I'm your host, Ted Fayton, and we're excited for today's guest. Uh, please help help us in welcoming our guest today, Dr. Aaron Simmons, ladies and gentlemen, from Furman University, author, leader, speaker, professor, really a, a long resume as I kind of was doing some research on you. Thanks for being on the show today. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, doctor, it's a pleasure to have you, and I guess... We're going to jump right into, I gave a little bit of an elevator pitch onto who you are, but why not explain who you are and what it is you do to our viewers really quick and our listeners? Yeah. So as most basic, I'm a philosopher Yeah, and, and everything else that I am, I think stems out of that. So I look at philosophy as a way of life, not simply a job. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of life that basically is committed to taking seriously what everybody else takes for granted. And so my approach to living and, and working and doing and as a father and a husband and a, a member of my church and member of the community, all of it has to do with, you know, what kind of value added can I bring by inviting us all to be more critically aware of where we find ourselves more invested in what we do and why we do it. Yeah. And then also, um, you know, in my classrooms in particular, inviting my students to be able to figure out what it is that matters to them and how then to go pursue that as a mode of living, not simply as a career opportunity. Right. Yeah. So trying to combine the idea of what we do and also who we are. And That's kind of how I, I look at what I do. And I, I fish whenever I get a chance. But, you know. <laughs> a little relaxation here and there. That's right. right. And I, I love the fact that you mentioned taking for granted. A lot of us, I think we take life for granted at times and that's really what no rain no rainbows is all about appreciating the storms because when you get the rainbows you have to know how you got there and um i guess the first question i like diving in deep right away hey what are some of those (laughs) what are some of those things that we might take for granted that might seem small on the surface most people think they're just mundane everyday things but they are in retrospect, actually massive things to pay attention to. Yeah. So the first book I always use in all of my intro to philosophy courses is This Is Water. It's a book by David Foster Wallace. Highly recommend it to listeners, to anybody. It's not a heavy philosophy book. It was a commencement address at Kenyon College. And what Wallace argues is that when we pay attention to the obvious things in life, we actually begin to recognize that very few of them are obvious. Mm -hmm. So, for example, he talks about, you know, sitting in traffic. And when you're in traffic, immediately your thought is, these people are in my way. Don't they know that I've got to get somewhere, that I'm trying to you know, make something happen, that I'm a valuable member of society, and they're sitting there in front of me not moving. they got to move. But he invites us not to think that we're necessarily wrong about that. Maybe they are just in our way. Mm-hmm. But more likely and possibly, we're in their way. Right? Ah. So if we flip the idea from it's not simply the world is somehow constraining me, But I'm not paying attention to the ways in which I'm making limits to other people's possibilities and I'm not standing in their way. I think that this is where life and death happens, right? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about more socially uh, important things, right? So the way we think about race or gender or the way that we think about um, economic disparities, all of these things are nested in particular assumptions that we have about what's true and what's good and what's beautiful. Yeah. And so if we start recognizing maybe my assumptions could end with question marks, mm-hmm. 
rather than periods. I invite yeah. my students often to raise the end of their sentences and turn a, a declarative sentence into a question. So if we say, you know, that's a nice tie you're wearing, and suddenly it becomes, that's a nice tie you're wearing? Yeah. Now we've got a question that we've got to think through. Yeah. So when we put our assumptions under question marks, I think that what we can start recognizing is the way that the world is rarely as easy, as simple, and as obvious as we think. Because we are rarely at the center of the world's attention like we think we are. Yeah. And so when we can humble ourselves enough to let question marks happen in our own life, we're more likely to invite others to be able to express their own periods, to express where they stand and why they stand there. And I think this is probably something that uh, our society right now could use a lot more of. Absolutely. And I can imagine that anybody that's going through a storm right now, when we talk no rain, no rainbows, it's easy to think about our personal problems as if they're our own, yeah. as if the world is against us or we play the blame game in terms of everything happening to us, exactly. but kind of stepping out of our own world and our own perspective and realizing that there's... So many other perspectives, billions right. of people right. around the world that are kind of all flowing through the same, same thing we call water, right? Mm -hmm. We're all flowing in this together and not really knowing what's going on. Exactly. I think that's the biggest revelation I've had in life was realizing I don't have it figured out. Yeah. I don't think anybody else does, mm -hmm. but there's, there's, uh, there's fear in that, mm -hmm. but there's beauty in that yeah, because right. we're not the only ones that are clueless out yeah. here. Well, Socrates, in fact, suggests this a long time ago when he says that the only reason that people think he's wise is because that he's aware of the fact that he doesn't have it all figured out. Yeah. He says he's, he's wise enough to know that he's ignorant in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we recognize that humility then becomes the core of truth-seeking, Yeah. right? The, the Greek word here would be aporia. Aporia just means a state of perplexity or confusion. Mm -hmm. It's basically the, the, the thing that happens when we say, huh. I ain't sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. When we, when we say we're not sure about something, when we enter that state of aporia, part of what happens is we then become open to seeing the world differently, to, to understanding things that we might not have, you know, previously noticed. Yeah. And that basic attunement, that, that awareness of what's going on doesn't mean that we don't then have knowledge, that we don't come back to a view that we thought we held. It just means that now we do it recognizing it's not the only place we could stand. Yeah. Right. That there are other places. There are other ways of doing things. And those also are pretty good. Yeah. And I think right now in a, a society of division, of polarization, we end up continuing to play to the more extreme views available within our communities. Mm -hmm. And we do this, in fact, you know, often facilitated by technology. If you take a group of people who all that say identify as conservative and a group of people identify as progressive, mm -hmm. that what will happen if they only talk to each other mm -hmm. is the whole room, the whole group will move closer to the extreme views among them yeah. rather than moving towards some sort of moderate view. The only way moderation happens is when we are aware of our own ignorance because we're confronted with the truth of another. I love that. And so that requires being able to invite in humility the hospitality required of really genuinely caring about truth, caring about goodness. That reminds me of the image of two gentlemen standing across from each other and there's a six or a nine on the floor in front of mm -hmm. them. And one's yelling nine, the other's yelling six. And to each of their perspective, they're accurate, they're right. correct. But because of their ignorance of the other person's perspective, they refuse to see their reality. That's exactly right. And it's, it's important to understand that 
when we start allowing for what in philosophy is called perspectivalism, where there are different ways to make sense of the world given where we stand within it, that doesn't mean that what's really on the floor is a three. Yeah. Right. So it still allows for right and wrong to matter. It allows for truth to be something that's still a value toward which we strive. It's just recognizing that the way that we understand this truth could maybe be more sophisticated, more nuanced if we recognize that others see it differently. Yeah. And seeing it differently doesn't mean that they are automatically irrational or immoral. It probably means that they have different experiences that have created a different set of perspectives for how they then navigate the world. Absolutely. So recognizing that our experiences shape how we see things should invite us to be humble enough to be interested in the stories of the experiences of others. Yeah. Unpacking how they got to that conclusion because yeah. there's so much more depth to simply what their answer was or what their perspective is. Right. Because the assumptions by which we navigate the world mm -hmm. affect then what we think of it. Mm -hmm. And so if we aren't interested in learning about, well, why is it that someone holds this view? Right. Why is it that they stand here as opposed to there? That's different than simply saying, where do you stand? Yeah. And too often we live lives, you might say, sort of defined by a kind of faith statement mm -hmm. mentality, right? Sign on the dotted line. Do you check these boxes? Oh, well, then you are this sort of person. I'm a Florida State Seminoles fan, for example. Yeah. Well, then I am not a Florida Gators fan. Mm -hmm. This is true. <laughs> However, the idea of saying, well, look, what it means not to be a Florida Gators fan might also mean that I'm an Alabama fan mm -hmm. or that I'm a Miami fan, right? It's th these dichotomies are rarely as stark and as strict as we think. Yeah. And so we've got to take seriously the fact that, well, shoot, why am I a Florida State fan? Not because I went there. I went there because I was a fan. I became a fan because when I was probably in third grade, mm -hmm. grew up in Florida, you, you had to pick yeah. Florida, Miami, or Florida State. Mm -hmm. And it turns out I liked Florida State's colors better. <laughs> yeah, you're <laughs> so, exposed to it. You liked right. it. This, and, and because I liked them and thought it was fun, I had a friend who had season tickets and we went to see some games. Right. Mm -hmm. So unless you understand that backstory, mm -hmm. the idea of my being a fan and therefore not being a fan of some other mm -hmm. is already missed because we've allowed it to just be a signing of the line at the bottom of a faith statement yeah. rather than digging into the life lived as faithful. I'm I think, interested. I think that was one of the the number one things that I think I took from college. Yeah. Um. And I say college, but I keep it. Multiple things that y'all have said just has. I'm just like look, looking them up, pulling up on my thing. But like y'all were talking about earlier, I instantly thought about Erica Badu, where she's mm -hmm. like the man who knows something knows that knows that he knows nothing at all. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what I'm saying? There's so much that we're not that we just don't know about, that, we, that we don't that we don't have the time to learn. We can't yeah. know everything. Well, it's important. Erica Badu also has this song that I love called Love of My Life. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the story of her relationship to hip hop. Yeah, and of course, nice. in, in that song, part of what she's doing is in fact engaging a, a history of relationships to hip hop that we mm -hmm. see in common and others, right? Mm -hmm. So this isn't her doing something radically unique or original. Yeah. What she's trying to do is put her distinctive perspective on something that others have also done. Yeah. And she's depending on this history by others. She's depending on the fact that she alone is not all of hip hop history yeah. Yeah. in order then for her contribution to that history to emerge out of the love of it. Yeah. Yeah. And in that way, her history, her story becomes, in fact, an invitation for others to write their own verse, to contribute to it. And in this way, I think uh, in many ways, you know, her song Love of My Life is similar to Walt Whitman in a poem he writes called O Me, O Life, where he asks, you know, what good amidst these, O Me, O Life? Yeah. Right? Basically, how could I have anything to contribute? Everybody else is better than me. Everybody's stronger than me. They're all more talented than me. 
And what Whitman responds mm. is he says, well, that I'm here. Yeah. The, 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 the quote is that the powerful play goes on and I might contribute a verse. So it's like right. an acknowledgement of your piece of the whole. Yeah. Perhaps. The, the, I literally have Walt Whitman hanging in my, in my freaking bedroom at home. <laughs> we were together and I forgot the rest. And it just goes right. to show that you're in the moment. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You have to be there. And that was one thing I, I took from your class was not the, uh, not the ability to know what to think about, but the ability mm -hmm. to learn how to think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Knowing that you can question someone with them being 100% correct mm -hmm. and not, and not, I don't wanna say like, not knock their, their opinion, but mm -hmm. understand where they're coming from inside yeah. of strengthening your opinion. You both yeah. can be right in a situation. Like that's, yeah. that's an option too. So uh, I always think about how people say, you know, heads or tails in a coin, mm -hmm. right? There's actually three sides of the coin. It's just not going to land on that on, on the side where it sits straight up. But you can physically put a put a quarter and sit it straight up on the side. It's yeah. just not going to land there very often. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So there is always that that other option that we may not even consider. Something that uh, one of my favorite theologians, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said um, is that instead of seeing the world as I can either do this or that, mm. that we should recognize that we can always do otherwise. Yeah. That no matter what we see as an absolute dichotomy, mm -hmm. that we're probably just not looking mm. hard enough mm. at finding different ways to go forward. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in the, the theme of no rain, no rainbows is to recognize not simply that, oh, well, we need the rain in order for the rainbow to occur. Right. Right? Actually, this is a, a potentially dangerous, what, what philosophers would call theodicy. Yeah. Where we end up sort of justifying evil in the name of some sort of eventual good. Okay. I think instead what we recognize is there is rain and there is there are rainbows. And, yeah. and the fact that both of these are part of the experience of the external world mm -hmm. invites us to recognize that it's not like we have to endure the rain to get to the rainbow. But maybe the rain, when you're thirsty, when you're hot, mm -hmm. when you're exhausted, is the beautiful part. Mm -hmm. right? Wow. Such that we end up mm -hmm. relating to these different dynamics in ways that allow both of them to speak to us given different stories, given different histories, given mm -hmm. perspectives. Mm -hmm. Not thinking that your account of the world is, in fact, just what the world is. Yeah. So the rain and the rainbows at different times can serve different purposes and can both be beneficial in their mm -hmm. own regard is what you're saying. Rainbows rarely help flowers grow. Wow. Yeah. See, you just completely reworked the whole entire meaning behind the <laughs> behind the message behind right. No Rain, No Rainbows, which is what I absolutely love. When you mentioned the moment of operaia, mm -hmm. I'm interested to know what your moment of operaia was and when you kind of jumped into the journey into philosophy and, and seeing the world through a different light. What was yeah. that journey for you? Dr. Yeah, well, I, I came to philosophy um, rather strangely. So I went to college to study physics mm. and loved physics because in high school I had an amazing physics teacher and we did all kinds of cool things like, you know, threw eggs off of the roof of the building and had yeah. to design something that would not let it break. And, you know, who wouldn't think this is awesome? So I got to college, wanted to study physics, was thinking engineering probably as a, as a goal. And in the process of doing this, what I eventually realized was the fact that physics asks these really important questions. What's the nature of reality? Mm -hmm. What's the nature of time? What's the nature of identity, right? But in order to ask those questions, you have to spend years and years and years doing mathematics as the tool set for being able to take up those questions. Yeah. And the problem was I didn't find that tool set compelling. Mm -hmm. I loved the questions, right? But I didn't find those tools the right way to go at it. And so I ended up doing what a lot of you know, 19, 20 year olds do. I studied away yeah. and went to Cambridge, England, um, spent time 
looking at art and architecture and, and reading books and sitting in the places where, you know, the authors I had grown up reading had once walked. Mm -hmm. And in those experiences, what I came to realize was that I loved culture as a mode of engaging those same questions. And mm -hmm. the way that history does this, right, is that it invites us to think about the way that others have interrogated these questions and offered their own answers to them. And so I found that very compelling. I ended up getting a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in history and with an emphasis of intellectual history because I was interested in the history of ideas. Yeah. But throughout all of that, um, I had never really studied philosophy. I had intro to philosophy as an undergrad, um, but it was just one course. Mm -hmm. I, I was at a Christian college. And I asked the professor who was a theologian, you know, why didn't we have a major in philosophy? Because I loved the course and it was awesome. And his response was, oh, my goodness, because the board of directors is scared of making atheists of its students. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, it sort of just bounced off. It's like, that didn't make any mm -hmm. sense. <clears throat> Only later did I realize that so much of the assumptions we carry with us need reinforced by the cultural power structures in which we find ourselves. Mm -hmm. And what philosophy does by inviting us to put question marks everywhere is challenge some of those power structures. Doesn't yeah. necessarily undermine them, right? It might reinforce them now in respectable and responsible ways, but it does require us to be, you know, you might say hermeneutically aware, which yeah. is a fancy way of saying there are different ways to understand stuff. So after finishing these degrees in history, I kept being told by professors that, you know, I was a philosopher because you know, mm -hmm. I didn't know what that really meant because I had only had this intro class, you know. And I discovered that what it meant was I was extremely interested in the way that others had answered these deep questions. Yeah. But I was more interested in how their answers might help us answer them. Mm. So I became interested in what we ought to think about these questions, not simply what others had thought. Yeah. And philosophy is that space. So I ended up going on and getting a master's and PhD at Vanderbilt in, in philosophy where I developed that question that then allowed the questions that kept me up at night to now be the object of my academic inquiry. Yeah. Right? And lo and behold, something that was quite surprising to me, I then discovered all those questions that had motivated me in physics were the same questions I ask now as a philosopher. What's the nature of reality? What's the nature of time? What's the nature of identity? Right? Mm -hmm. How do we make sense of meaning? And in thinking these questions through now, I get to do it with a different set of tools. Yeah. And the tools of the philosopher, though many philosophers do use mathematics and scientific data, we also are committed to argument and reason giving and understanding history as the sort of critical resource for then thinking through what's plausible relative to the claims that we make. And so my journey into philosophy was when I say it's a way of life, what I mean by that is it was never, oh, here's a job that looks cool. Mm -hmm. It was always I from, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old, found myself asking questions and trying to then cling to those areas that allowed me to think them through and answer them. Yeah. And in that process, I eventually found philosophy as where my questions became the thing I then got to get out of bed and do every day. Yeah. Rather than simply talking about the answers that someone else had offered. And I can't think of a, a better way to spend a life. Absolutely. Right? That's pretty fantastic as far as I'm concerned. I love it. And in terms of asking these questions, kind of making it applicable to to some of the listeners that are maybe waking up, they're going through their, their storms or their hard times, yeah. and they're not really sure how to change their perspective on mm -hmm. life. Obviously, these questions can help maybe remove somebody from the situation and see things a little differently. Yeah. Even you mentioning, you know, 
rainbows don't help flowers grow, mm-hmm. right? We we say, hey, you know, why are my why am I going through rough waters? Because mm-hmm. rough waters build good sailors. Mm-hmm. So there's utility to these hard times that folks might be going through. What questions would you would you say some listeners should start asking themselves to maybe see the world a little differently? Maybe mm-hmm. a glimpse of the lens that you see the world through. Yeah. Well. I tend to think that the specific questions that should be asked are probably going to arise out of one specific story in history. This is hence the Erica Badu example earlier. However, I think that if we start asking questions that are possibility launching rather than um, commiserating, you know, stabilizing, I guess, right? So instead of asking why me, Mm -hmm. let's ask why not? You know, what, what could I then do, right? Instead of just asking why, like the, the two-year-old, right? The two-year-old is a, always a good philosopher, but yeah. why, but why, but why? But eventually we've got to say, well, why not do it this other way, mm-hmm. right? And so instead of approaching the world as stable and, and secure, we instead see it as dynamic and a space of opportunity. Yeah. In thinking about it this way, um, I think that we actually get a, a overlap between philosophy and what I would describe as simply you know, business innovation principles. Mm-hmm. Innovation matters because we've got to think about the idea that just repeating what's been done is rarely going to create new value. Right. And this is known wide, widely among entrepreneurs. I think actually philosophers have known this for, you know, centuries and millennia relative to human existence and meaning. Yeah. So rather than approaching our life as a stable thing that is somehow scripted from the outset, instead, what we've got to start doing is invite ourselves to say, well, what would the next chapter look like if mm-hmm. something were different? Mm-hmm. And if that's a more compelling chapter, then let's figure out how to make those differences mm-hmm. obtain so that we can, in fact, write the story that way. Yeah. Right. So I think at the end of the day, it's there is no magical secret or mystical set of principles that allow life to be happy. I think at the end of the day, we've got to recognize that, hey, if we're on a ship going through rough waters, that hopefully we've made smart decisions about a trustworthy ship. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because <laughs> if not, things could get much worse. Yeah. So this is about, you know, we, we should be planning. We should mm-hmm. be taking seriously where we're going. We should be strategic about what we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to get from Greenville to Charlotte, getting on a ship is probably a really dumb thing to do. Yeah. If you're trying to get from Greenville to the Bahamas, a ship makes some sense. Yeah. So thinking about where you're trying to go and why you're trying to get there allows us then to sort of reverse engineer, well, what's the best way to make this happen? Yeah. And if we find ourselves having made decisions that maybe weren't the best, right? We're on a ship and we're stranded on the land. Well, mm-hmm. get off the ship. Mm-hmm. It turns out if you're stranded, you got something to walk on. Yeah. <laughs> right. So rather than feeling trapped by circumstance, it, it's, it doesn't change our circumstance just to change our mind, but changing our mind allows us to recognize that circumstances can be changed. Absolutely. And I think at that level, um, it's not just, you know, sort of positive psychology that attitude is everything. No, sometimes it's structural injustice that mm-hmm. is the, the obstacle. Sometimes it's limits to natural resources that's the obstacle. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's political will that is the obstacle. But at the end of the day, we can make more of what has been made of us yeah. when we start taking seriously who we are, where we are, and where we're trying to go. It's almost like this switch of the mindset com- accompanied with the responsibility. Yeah. The mindset of what was me or there's nothing I can do to – let me take a look at an audit of my current situation and then let me take the responsibility and find out what I practically have control over what I don't and then 
apply those decisions that I make from here on out right. into mapping out the future, the potential future. Right. We can never guarantee an outcome, but yeah. we can put ourselves in a good position for an outcome to, to happen. That's right. And I think it's important to recognize that sometimes we shouldn't be o overly concerned about pragmatic mm -hmm. possibility. Mm -hmm. That's certainly a, a good first step, yeah. right? If, if you're um, trying to think about a new direction in life, it's important to say, well, what are the plausible directions that I could make happen tomorrow or the next day or next month? But when we start thinking about what motivates life itself, what, what drives us, mm -hmm. I think that there we've got to be really careful not to fall into what I sometimes call the failure of success, right? The trap that we get so convinced that our to-do list is where our responsibility f ultimately lies yeah. that we forget that our to-be list is actually what the responsibility looks like such that we can then do the to-do list on purpose. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I think about uh, Martin Luther King Jr., for example, when he says, I have a dream, um, I don't think this was a strategic plan for how we make today look differently tomorrow in order to get to some possible future. I think what he was describing was a future that was impossible mm -hmm. in relationship to the perspectives of the minds and the, the segregated society in which he lived. And yet, because he was able to speak into existence that impossibility as a why not yeah. vision, then his goal, right, have to be strategic. What are we going to do in Montgomery? What are we trying to accomplish with this meeting with this person and this politician? What is this march going to accomplish? What would we see as our success? Those become important questions. Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't work out, they're not wrecked by failure because the goal is not simply to march on this day in yeah. that space. The goal is to live toward that vision mm -hmm. that is otherwise impossible. Wow. So as we walk into it and we become strategic and think about success, we open the possibility of being faithful to something that in fact is not going to be accomplished today or tomorrow, yeah. but in fact will define the trajectory of our life. I sometimes say to my students and audiences that faith should not be understood as a primarily religious idea, mm -hmm. but faith should simply be understood as a risk with direction. Yeah. And so when we take ourselves up as risking something, and namely we're risking ourselves, our mm -hmm. very identity, our, our stories, we're risking them towards something. Mm -hmm. We've got to be careful that that toward not be something that we can do on a Thursday yeah. in five years. Yeah. Because then we might have the unfortunate reality of getting out of bed on that Friday and not know now what to do with ourselves. Yeah. So instead, if we can avoid being defined by failure, I mean, it's gonna be defined by success and threatened by failure. Mm -hmm. We're able then to live a life that is faithful to what we think matters such that when we find ourselves on a ship tossed by the waves, mm -hmm. we recognize, yeah, but we're still moving in the direction that I think is worthwhile. When people right? say the journey is the destination almost, right. where I have a vision board, my fiance has a vision board, we talk about the lives we, we one day want to live. Right. And it's not so much that there's a set goal, we want this amount of in our bank account right. or this car. Right. It's more or less what we're able to do in life. We talk about living a That's life right. where you know, the work week is just another day. Mm -hmm. We can we can go here, we can go there. I always say, people say, where do you want to hang your hat? Where do you want to live? I don't yeah. care where I put my flagpole. I just don't yeah. want to be tethered to it. Yeah, that's I want to be able to travel the world and, and go where I want when I want. Yeah. And the steps there could be this podcast, it could be business ventures, right. and those can go up and down. Mm -hmm. But I know I'm always heading in that direction. Yeah, and we might say that at the end of the day, it might be interesting to ask ourselves, mm -hmm. well, not just what do I want for my own future, 
but what do I want said of my life by those who in fact exist after I do, <laughs> right? And so if we approach it that way, then it becomes about this total story mm -hmm. and, and the trajectory now will make sense. Think about it. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Yeah. So you might say, well, shoot, he didn't accomplish half of what he set out to do. Mm -hmm. And yet to see his life as a failure would be to misunderstand that it was never defined by checking the boxes of these success functions. It was about living a life faithful to civil rights, human dignity, right? Justice as this long play. Yeah. And to say that his life was anything less than a success would be to misunderstand what it was that I think his life was oriented toward. Yeah. It's like the question I like to ask people. It's what would you want your great, great grandkids to know about you? Yeah. Nice way to put the, it. After the memory of you immediately there is gone, you know, what's that lasting memory yeah. or explanation of your life that you want to kind of stand the test of time almost? Yeah. The way I sometimes think about that is the difference between live, leaving a legacy mm -hmm. versus leaving a mark. Yeah. So if you go to any university campus, you'll find lots of plaques all over the campus and they're, they're marks from some donor who has given some money, which mm -hmm. is important and it allows us to keep doing what we do, but their name gets marked then on some wall. Yeah. Right? And yet that mark is something that happened purely because of, you know, say an act of charity and act of goodwill. And this is again, certainly valuable, but we can sometimes confuse legacies for the ability to have made those sorts of marks mm -hmm. when in fact we forget that the legacy of the professor who got out of bed every single day and doesn't have enough money to leave that mark on the side of the wall yeah. might have in fact left the legacy of hundreds and thousands of students who now are out making their own marks and legacies on others. Mm -hmm. And it may not even be the professor. Maybe it's the janitorial staff or the dining hall staff who in fact are getting missed in this process of a life defined by success, money, accomplishment, and mark making. Yeah. But their legacy was acts of service in every single day toward people who were in front of them. And being able to say, well, who will remember this person? Mm -hmm. The answer is thousands and thousands of people. Absolutely. Right? And there's something really valuable about that. Whereas those thousands of people can also walk right by that mark on some plaque <laughs> and never pay attention to what was done there. Yeah. Even though they may live in light of the legacy that was left financially, mm -hmm. they're also being poured into by the legacies left by all of these other lives that are lived in front of them. Yeah. To your point, I do not remember the, the name of the football field I played on in right. high school, but I remember Coach Wright and all the lessons yep. that he taught us while practicing for the football game. Almost like the quote, you know, nice what we do it. in life echoes eternity. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that we're running out of time. So I, I want to first ask, um, I always ask this question in terms of no rain, no rainbows. What are some, what is a storm you've gone through in life that gives you confidence moving forward to kind of endure any other hard times that might, might stumble upon you? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's kind of an easy answer actually. Um, it's a storm that is less my experience and one that I have lived as a result of. Mm -hmm. So when I was young, um, some things happened in, in very quick succession. My father, who was a tenured professor of art and tenure is supposed to mean, right, that you don't lose your job. Well, it turns out his university was in financial problems, so they cut the art department. So mm -hmm. suddenly this tenured professor now was without a position. Very shortly thereafter, my three-year-old sister got diagnosed with cancer. And shortly thereafter, we moved to an entirely different state without, you know, the prospects being obvious and what we were doing, but we were moving there so she could get treatment. 
thankfully we had family in the area. And then shortly after her treatment, my brother, who I think was seven at the time, got diagnosed with diabetes. Mm -hmm. So suddenly we've got now financial problems, mm -hmm. <clears throat> changing cities and locations and social networks, going to see my sister, you know, when she was in, in, you know, very dangerous states. I, I remember, you know, her being behind some sort of plastic wall, kind of a bubble that I couldn't go through because it would risk her life. Yeah. And then my brother, you know, taking insulin shots every single day in order to stay alive and us trying to figure out how to navigate all this. And so now we've got healthcare bills piling up, crises relative to job prospects. And through all of this, what I saw was not a mother and father who were, were wrecked under this reality, which I probably would be, right? I, I yeah. probably don't have the character that they did. Instead, my dad, who had been an art professor and was, you know, touring Italy talking about Michelangelo's and, and winning best of shows, he actually started a painting subcontracting company and started working construction, wow. painting Burger Kings and racetrack gas stations and things because that put food on the table and allowed us to continue moving forward. And never once did I hear him complain. Right. And when that wasn't enough, he took on a newspaper route from like 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. And then would come home and help us get to school. And then he would go paint all day long, working construction and then come back, sleep for a few hours, get back up and go deliver newspapers. Wow. And through all of this, my parents didn't get divorced. They, they never declared bankruptcy. Somehow we managed to move through this and it was not easy. Um, but it also wasn't as hard as many families have it, mm -hmm. right? So we were blessed the entire time still to have love and care and a house over our head and, and food on the table. But it required sacrifice from my parents in ways that have always inspired me to say, look, never take yourself seriously, yeah. but always take what you do seriously. And so my dad, if he had been defined by having to check the boxes of being the professor at the university and winning these awards – we'd have been in trouble because he would have left the family to go make sure those things happened. Yeah. Instead, he was defined by becoming a good father for his lifetime, becoming a husband for his lifetime, <laughs> becoming a provider for his lifetime. And he did all of those things, even when times were tough and when times were better, that was obviously, you know, better yeah. days, yeah. more rainbows than those days. <laughs> but the idea was this was a, a journey that required struggle and overcoming that struggle, not because we were devastated by it, but because my parents modeled what it looks like to be adaptable and not see the needing to adapt as some sort of devastation of their identity yeah. because they never were defined by those positions or that status or that opportunity. They were in fact rooted in the importance of what matters. And, wow. and for me, uh, everything that I do, the hard times I've had in my own life and struggles and this and that, I, I keep going back to their example and saying, you know what? Like that, that's the way I hope I live. Yeah. Right. Well, Dr. Simmons, I'm, I'm blown away. <laughs> I am blown away. Um, why not make sure people can reach out, get in touch with you if they want to, where can they find you? Yeah. So the easiest place is to go on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me there, uh, Aaron Simmons on LinkedIn. Um, also feel free to email me. It's just A-A-R-O-N dot S-I-M-M-O-N-S at Furman.edu, Aaron.Simmons at Furman.edu. Um, and you can find me on the Furman website in the philosophy department. So I, I do try my best to respond to any sort of uh, engagement or feedback or questions that come my way. And I get them a lot from uh, community members uh, around the globe that have read some of my work or seen me on you know, podcasts or, or uh, different events. And so it's always a rewarding experience and, and deeply humbling. Yeah. To recognize that you've said something that somebody else thought was worth holding on to, mm -hmm. 
Um, and it never is something that I think allows me to think, oh, I've got this figured out, right? Mm -hmm. Back to Socrates. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, it requires me to be ever more vigilant yeah. about making sure that the kind of life that I lead, that my students see me lead, you know, listeners may know that the executive producer of this program was a student of mine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so being able to live a life in front of others that will never be perfect, mm -hmm. but hopefully in, is inviting them to live into a life that they recognize as meaningful. Wow. And I think that's probably worthwhile. Yeah. I think uh, what I'm taking away, I mean, there's, I started to take notes. I couldn't keep up because you were just dropping so many bombs. So I'm just going to go ahead and put this episode on replay. But something you, you said not too long ago was, um, don't take yourself too seriously, but take what you do seriously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really hope those listeners kind That's of pull that with quote, them. Man. My favorite quote. My dad used to say it all quote. the time. Yeah. Take what yeah. you do seriously. Because if you don't take it seriously, don't do it. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, <laughs> if you're going to do it, do it well. Yeah. But as soon as you start believing your own hype, then no one should take mm -hmm. what you do seriously. Yeah. Because it's about you. And so if you say, look, it's not about me. It's about being excellent. Yeah. Then may maybe then we can invite others to join with us, whether we agree, whether we disagree, going back to where we started, whether we stand on different sides of, of a political aisle or a religious aisle or, or different sides of the football stadium. Nonetheless, we all are defined by a human condition that unites us and that human condition will have rain. And that rain will sometimes be refreshing and other times it will be absolutely just exhausting. Yeah. It'll be defined by rainbows. And some days we have the energy to go out and look at them and other days someone has to drag us out to see it. But at, you know, we, we, we are human, we are mortal. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to figure out how do we make the most of the time that we have? Yeah. And it seems to me that that's a challenge that all of us are able to undertake. Absolutely. And I'll say this, 30 minutes is not enough time to have you on the episode. So we're going to have to have you back. Dr. My Smith, pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And to anybody who made it to the end, I know you're going to have to hit replay on this episode. So much value to be taken, but just remember to ask the question, why not? Mm -hmm. I hope you take that away. As we always say at the end of the episode, everybody wants the sunshine, but they don't want the rain, but you can't get the pleasure without a little pain. Let's grow. The No Rain, No Rainbows podcast is recorded at Camaraderie, a collective workspace in Greenville, South Carolina, right off the Swamp Rabbit Trail. If you're looking for a place to grow your business, network with other professionals, and establish your own workspace, Camaraderie is the place to do so. Get access to high-speed internet, private showers and towel service, free methodical coffee, and free beer on tap. For more details, be sure to head over to camaraderiecowork.com or hit the link in the show notes and find out how you can lock in your space with rates starting at just $99 a month. Be sure to tell them that Ted sent you and try it out for free. You never know, you just might find a new home at Camaraderie. Let's grow.